We now come to the preaching of God's Word, and so open your Bibles to John 14. We're going to be in John 14, verses 8 to 14. And as we ready our minds and our hearts for what we're going to see today, I want you to consider that in the midst of difficult and distressing circumstances, it's natural to want to see God. When you're under the weight of circumstances that are crushing, when those circumstances seem to have no sign of letting up, no sign of changing, when it seems virtually impossible to see even beyond the circumstances themselves, it's natural that in that place you would want to see God, to see his goodness, to see his faithfulness, to see his justice, to see his steadfast covenant love. That if you could just see God in the midst of your circumstances, then you would have everything you need to endure them. Well, that's exactly where we find the disciples. They want to see the Father. And the request that we're going to see in these verses to see him results in a stunning claim by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me. John 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, as you know, the disciples are troubled. Jesus has announced his departure. He's indicated there's a traitor in the ranks. He's pointed out that the leader of the pack, Peter himself, is going to deny him three times. And Jesus is very aware that they are distressed. He can see they're troubled. He can see it in their body language. He can see it on their face, that they're disturbed and distressed. And so he seeks to comfort them, and to do so, he begins by exhorting them, verse 1, to trust him, to entrust themselves to him, and to trust that the same loving care they've experienced during his earthly ministry will be theirs even after his departure. And he points them to heaven, declaring that in the Father's house are many dwelling places, promising that he would return 
and would receive them to himself that where he is, there they may be also. And then on the heels of Thomas's uncertainty about the way, the way to the Father's house, Jesus makes a powerful pronouncement, declaring, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Even saying, verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And it's that statement at the end of verse 7 that precipitates Philip's request, where he says, Lord, show us the Father. And in what follows, the Lord continues to comfort his disciples. He continues to minister to them. And as he does, he asserts himself as the supreme revelation of the Father, that he supremely reveals the Father to them such that to see him is to see the Father. And then goes on to make more promises, this time pointing them to fruitful ministry, not, not to heaven, not to the Father's house, but rather to fruitful ministry as a direct result of his departure. And if this was intended to comfort the disciples, then it ought to comfort us. In fact, it ought to renew our minds with respect to what comfort is. The content of these verses is incredibly comforting, even in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances, and we need to receive this comfort. And to frame this, we're going to see the plea in verses 8 to 11. Then the promise in verses 12 to 14, and there are two promises, so we're going to see the, the promise of power and then the promise of prayer. But note first the plea. The plea. And here, Jesus appeals to the disciples to embrace the implication of his oneness with the Father. This comes out in verse 8 and following. Look at it. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So Philip, speaking on behalf of the entire group, fails to grasp what Jesus has just said in the previous verse. And he wants Jesus to put the Father on display in such a way that they would be able to apprehend him with their senses. In effect, he's asking Jesus for a theophany, a visible manifestation of God. And he even claims that if they could just see God, it would be sufficient. Then they would be satisfied. They'd have all the comfort they need for all of the difficulty ahead of them. And to appreciate the irony of this, if you can't already, you have to put yourself in the sandals of Jesus for a moment. There are numerous examples of theophanies in the Old Testament, visible manifestations of God. But at this very moment, the eternal word, God the Son, is in their very presence. And he is there in human flesh. And they want a theophany. A theophany is a downgrade. A theophany comes short of the revelation of God that is in their midst right now. 
The incarnation is the fullest, clearest, and most glorious visible manifestation of God there ever was. And they want a theophany. You know, Moses had a similar request to this when he said to God, I pray you show me your glory, Exodus 33. And God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, covered him with his hand, and, and, and caused his glory to pass him by, declaring Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's one of the supreme theophanies of the Old Testament, and Moses was richly blessed to receive it. But the disciples had experienced something far greater, something far better, God incarnate. And far from a momentary theophany, he had been with them for three years. This wasn't just a moment of glory passing them by. This was God incarnate in their midst, dwelling among them. In fact, with the vantage point of hindsight, John declares, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory was in their midst. The glory made manifest in the incarnation was a far superior glory than what Philip was even asking for. And so as you might expect, Jesus is somewhat baffled. Philip is out of touch with reality. And this comes out in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so what's implied in verse 7 is stated more clearly here. In verse 7, Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him, implying that to see him is to see the Father. But here, it's stated more plainly. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, is Jesus calling into question whether Philip had truly come to know him? No. As with Thomas, Philip had already come to know him savingly. Instead, Jesus is exposing the deficiency of his comprehension. His understanding is incomplete. His request betrays a gap in his understanding, and so his faith needed to be more fully informed. But how can Jesus say, he who has seen me has seen the Father? Is he saying he is the Father? No. As John 1.1 indicates, the Father and the Son are both eternal and distinct. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Son isn't the Father, and the Father isn't the Son, nor did the Father become the Son. The Father and the Son are two distinct persons, co-equal and co-eternal. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying he's one with the Father. He's declaring his oneness 
with the Father. He declared as much back in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And so he's declaring that he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. That the fullness of deity dwells in him, Colossians 2.9. And that he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. And to express this, he uses the language of being in union with the Father, of being in the Father, and the Father being in him. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? So the Father and the Son mutually indwell one another, and they do so in such a way that they maintain their distinctness as father and son. And the evidence that Jesus gives for this union, this mutual indwelling where the father is in the son and the son in the father, though maintaining their distinctiveness, next part of verse 10, Jesus says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his works. And even here, Jesus makes it clear that his words and works are both works. That the works of Jesus aren't merely his signs and wonders, but even his words are bound up in his works. And when he speaks, he doesn't speak on his own initiative, which means he doesn't speak from himself. His words don't originate with him. They originate with the Father. And the same can be said with respect to his works. He only does those things he sees the Father doing. His works originate with the Father as well. And Jesus has spoken like this previously. He does back in John 5, for example, on the heels of declaring that his Father is working until now and he himself is working, making himself equal with God. He says in verse 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. The Father shows the Son everything he is doing, and the Son does all the things he sees the Father doing, and that includes even the words that he speaks. And so there's this oneness this mutual indwelling, this union between the Father and the Son, where the Father is the Father and the Son is the Son, but they share the same nature and essence. And therefore, they share the same likeness, resulting in the plea or the appeal. In verse 11, where the Lord says, believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. When he says, believe me, what's he appealing to? 
He's appealing to his word, saying, believe the word that I'm speaking to you. I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if that's too much, if, if, if Jesus is asking of the disciples too much to merely believe the word that he speaks, Look at the second half of verse 11. He says, Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Let the testimony of the works themselves persuade you that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The, the works that Jesus did in his earthly ministry testify that he is God the Son, one with the Father, co-equal, co-eternal. And so Philip and the others need to realize that in seeing Jesus, they are seeing the Father. Philip doesn't need to ask, show us the Father. Jesus is the, the supreme revelation of the Father, and if they see him clearly and accurately, then they are seeing the Father. Something far better than a theophany was in their midst. Now, what does it mean to see Jesus? Is it to see him physically? To see Jesus, do you have to see him in bodily form? Do you need to see him in human flesh? Well, no. I mean, God is spirit, John 4, 24. He's invisible, 1 Timothy 1, 17. So to see Jesus isn't isn't to see him physically. And furthermore, there was nothing special about his outward appearance. There was no stately form or majesty about him, Isaiah 53, 2. In fact, even when Scripture says he's the image of the invisible God, it isn't saying that, that his, his, his physical appearance is the image of God. It's not about the physical appearance of Christ. On the outward, Jesus appeared to be human and was, in fact, true man truly human, but he was more than merely truly human. So seeing Jesus isn't seeing him physically, it's accurately perceiving who he is. It's accurately perceiving him as he's revealed himself. It's believing in him. It's receiving the, the testimony of Scripture concerning him. It's coming to know him through regeneration and faith. And so to see Jesus is to see him through the lens of faith, receiving the revelation of him in the word of God, such that you see his glory and his beauty and his majesty not in physical form, but in terms of his likeness, nature, and essence. And that means this, that if you've been born from above and have believed on Christ, then you have seen Jesus. You haven't seen him in bodily form, and even now he is seated at the Father's right hand in glorified human flesh, and he'll be in glorified human flesh for all of eternity, so you will see him in glorified human flesh. But you don't even need to see him in that way to see him. If you've believed on him and you've believed the testimony concerning him, then you have seen him. 
And if you've seen him, then you've seen who? You've seen the Father. And you have no reason to say to Jesus, show us the Father, because he has already revealed him to you. To see Christ is to see the Father, because the Father and the Son are one, one in essence and nature. To see Christ clearly is to see the Father clearly. The more fully you see the Son, the more fully you understand the Son, know the Son, comprehend the Son, the more fully you comprehend the Father. The Father has made the Son the one through whom he has revealed himself most supremely, and he uses the Spirit of God to glorify Christ as the one who reveals the Father such that the Father is revealing himself through the Son, the Spirit is glorifying the Son to reveal the Father, and the whole Trinity is at work in putting the Father ultimately on display. And so you want to know the Father more fully, behold him in the Son. He is the supreme revelation of the Father and being in the very bosom of the Father, he has explained him, John 1.18. And so if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, furthermore, you don't know the Father. You don't know God, and you want to know God. And furthermore, you want to see God. You want to see his glory and majesty. You need to behold him in the Son. The Father has sent the Son into the world to be the revelation of him. It, the Son is the clearest, fullest, most glorious revelation of the Father in redemptive history. And he reveals him perfectly. And so to receive the Father, to have the Father, to see the Father, you must receive the Son. And to receive the Son, you must recognize why the Son came. The Son came to lay down his life for the forgiveness of sins. He came as our representative to, to, to accomplish what the first Adam failed to accomplish. He comes to, to right all wrongs, as it were, and he came to live a, a life that we couldn't, subjecting himself to the law of God, obeyed the law in every respect, was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, and then he went to the cross. And on that cross, he suffered under the wrath of God for the forgiveness of sin. He died, he went into the grave, and he rose on the third day. And now you need to believe on him. He is the only sacrifice for sin. Forgiveness is only available in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so if you want the Father, if you want to see God, you need to lay hold of the Son by faith. It's the Son who has made the Father known. And so if you've seen the Son, then you've seen the Father. And that should be of some comfort in the midst of difficult circumstances. One, because there is nothing more precious than that. There is nothing more precious in human life and existence than to know God. 
And so if you know God through Christ, then you are incredibly rich. And two, because you know the very one of which everything is working for his glory. Everything is working for the glory of God. He is sovereign. He is faithful. His covenant love is steadfast and unbreakable. He holds you firmly in the palm of his hand. No one and nothing can pluck you out. And his glory, him glorifying himself, is inseparable from him fulfilling his pledge to you. The glory of God would be marred if he did not prove true on his pledge to you in his son. And so our times tough, they may very well be, but there is comfort right here. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. That's the plea. Now second, note the promise. And there are two promises. And the first is the promise of power. The promise of power. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. What a promise. This should have been an incredible encouragement to the disciples. It was promising fruitful ministry, not just beyond the departure of Jesus, but because of it. Look at the end of the verse. Because I go to the Father. Fruitful ministry for the disciples was contingent on Jesus going to the Father. And so by virtue of him going to the Father, the disciples wouldn't just do the works he did, they would do even greater works. And so how are we to understand this? I mean, is this universal? Are we saying here that, that those of us who have believed on Christ, that we should expect to perform the works that Jesus did and, and even greater works than these? Is that what the Lord is saying here? Well, we've got to work through this a little bit. And so let's do that. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me. Now that sounds very universal. That sounds as though it applies to every believer, that this promise is for everyone in Christ. But let's just test that a little bit. Jesus then says, the works that I do, he will do also. Well, let's just think about the works that Jesus did. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He restored the lame. He gave sight to the blind even to a man born blind. That's just to name a few. And so is Jesus saying that he who believes in him universally will do likewise? Show of hands, anyone here raise the dead? Anyone here given sight to the blind? Anyone here taken a paralytic and made them walk? Okay, so that disqualifies us. 
But what about the disciples? Ah, yes, they did. Yes, they did. For example, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple. And at a gate called Beautiful, there's a, a lame man that's there, and he's there to beg alms. He's been lame from his mother's womb. Peter commands the man in the name of Jesus to get up, and the man immediately gets up, leaps to his feet, and goes into the temple praising God. In fact, look at Acts 5 for a moment. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 and following, because there you have a, a little summary of the deeds of the apostles and the works that they did. Acts 5, verse 12, it says this, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more, believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities were in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Okay, so hang on a second. The Lord is making a promise to the disciples, and, and the reality, the, the promise came to fruition in their ministry. They were doing the deeds of Jesus. They were performing the, the signs and wonders. They even raised the dead, as you read through the book of Acts. And so we can say at least this much. The promise made here to the disciples came to realization after the ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. And then Jesus says, back to John 14, and greater works than these he will do. Greater works did the apostles ever eclipse walking on water. Did the apostles ever eclipse turning water into wine? Did the apostles ever eclipse feeding thousands with their bare hands? The answer is obviously no. So what are these greater works? Well, we'd have to identify something in the ministry of the apostles that's distinct from the ministry of Christ. So what do we see in the ministry of the apostles that's different than what we see in the ministry of Christ. Think about the Lord's ministry. For three years, he ministered in Israel. And here he is with 11 men. One was there and left as a traitor. The number of disciples is quite few. And yet when Peter preaches his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, how many come in? 3,000. And then there's thousands upon thousands more that come in. The gospel goes from Judea to Samaria to the, the ends of the earth. The, the Gentile world receives the gospel. And so the greater works are what? 
greater fruitfulness in ministry, greater gospel preaching, more conversions, more people coming to know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's the greater works that the Lord is promising here. And the reason is given. Really, the reason for both. The reason the disciples would would perform the works that Jesus did, but even more importantly than that, the reason the greater works would take place, the reason they would have such fruitful gospel ministry is expressed at the end of the verse, because I go to the Father. Why is that so critical? And we've already alluded to it. It's critical because going to the Father results in the sending of the Spirit, at which time the Spirit would indwell the disciples and they would have union with Christ. And they would have a power source from on high that would ultimately result in powerful gospel preaching as people would come to know God the Father, through the gospel of his Son. And really, this comes out in verses 16 and 17. John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, rather another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be future tense in you. A promise that though the Spirit was most definitely with the disciples, in soon time he would be in them, indwelling them, even filling them. In fact, by the Spirit coming and indwelling the disciples, both the Father and the Son would indwell them also. We saw this last time. Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So through the the indwelling Spirit and the Spirit being poured out in connection with the new covenant in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, not only would the Spirit indwell them, but by the Spirit, the Father and the Son would indwell them. And so the promise is somewhat limited. The disciples would do the works that Jesus did, authenticating them as his messengers and as those who have the message of salvation, and would do even greater works, and the greater works they would do wouldn't consist of miraculous signs and wonders, but rather the miracle of the new birth. Fruitful gospel ministry. Now, I guess the question is, should that encourage us? Absolutely. Why? Because we participate in the same gospel ministry. We've been given the the same message of salvation. We've been given the same great commission. 
And we have the same indwelling spirit. And as we even consider the the times we're in, the, the distress of our present day, have we ever experienced more fruitful gospel ministry than we have in this time? Has the gospel ever gone forth with more power than it is right now? Have we ever seen more people coming to Christ than we're seeing right now? As I interact with other pastors, for example, whose churches have been open and stayed open and stood tall, they have testified that they have never experienced a more fruitful time in gospel ministry in their entire ministry. The gospel is going forth with power as the church is suffering under the the tyranny of government. It's making Christ shine brightly. It's making the gospel shine brightly as people are even under the distress of a of a virus that they're afraid of. They're, they want to know the truth. They want to know God. And so I would say this is incredibly encouraging. In fact, this ought to reorder our priorities. This is why we're here. You can't win souls in heaven. Sanctification ends the moment you leave this body. The whole purpose of us being here is to to glorify God, to glorify Christ. The church is the the vehicle, the means by which God is putting his manifold glory on display. And so this ought to take our eyes off the, the difficulty of our circumstances and place them on the opportunity that's before us. There is a gospel opportunity for all of us. And so we need to seize the day We need to lay aside sin. We need to lay aside encumbrances. We need to put our hand to the plow and we need to bring in the harvest. This is a wonderful time to be in Christ, to be alive, and to be in the ministry of the gospel. Just keep in mind, the apostles themselves suffered. And as they did, the gospel went forth with power we find ourselves in a very similar time. And so that's the promise of power. Now two, under the second main heading, the promise, note the promise of prayer. The promise of prayer. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now think about it, would Jesus be leaving them? Yes. But would that mean he would cease to provide for them and to care for them? No. He would continue to supply their needs through prayer. Through prayer, they would have access to Christ and to the Father. Direct access to the throne of grace. And this promise is significant. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. What does it mean to ask in his name? Well, it doesn't mean that we can just tack in Jesus' name on the end of our prayers and expect that by virtue of doing that, it guarantees that whatever it is that we're asking for is going to come to fruition, as though we're some kind of magical formula or incantation. That's not what this means. So what does it mean? It means to pray in a manner consistent with who he is to pray in a manner consistent with his character, consistent with his kingdom, 
consistent with his will. And the purpose of prayer is second, in the second half of the verse, is expressed so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So, so prayer is intended to glorify God. And so to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in a manner consistent with the glory of God. And this principle is reiterated throughout this discourse. Look at chapter 15 and verse 7. Jesus says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so if you're abiding in Christ and his word is abiding in you, you're going to pray in a manner that's consistent with his will, consistent with his character, consistent with his kingdom, consistent with his name. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Again, fruit bearing and, and prayer go hand in hand, that as we bear fruit, we're going to pray in a manner consistent with the will of God. John 16, 23, in that day, look at John 16, 23. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Again, asking in a manner that is consistent with the name of Jesus is asking in a manner that's consistent with who he is. Verse 24, until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. And so fullness of joy in the Christian life is connected to, to, to prayer, and as we'll see in John 15, it's connected to abiding in Christ and, and being obedient to his commands, like a verse 26 and following. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Stop there. He's not saying that he has to bring the request to the Father and appeal to the Father on your behalf. No, look, the next verse, verse 27, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. The Father hears the prayers that we pray, and as we pray in a manner consistent with the Father's will, which is simultaneously consistent with the name of Jesus, those prayers are going to be answered. And to broaden this a little bit beyond the Gospel of John, the same principle is reiterated in 1 John 5, 14 and following. Same author. No longer, though, is it recording the upper room discourse. Now John is instructing the church at Ephesus, and he says this, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. And so the, the charge to us is to, to pray in a manner consistent with the will of God, and the will of God has been revealed to us in the word of God, 
We're gonna pray in a manner consistent with God's interests, with God's glory, with salvation and sanctification. And God has promised that he's going to answer those prayers as we pray in that way. And so back to John 14, Jesus says in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, what a promise. And maybe an observation to point out there, we typically pray to the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. And you may be wondering if it's ever appropriate to pray directly to Jesus. Well, that statement right there in verse 14 sanctions it. Yes, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It is entirely appropriate to pray directly to Jesus. Now, prayer obviously isn't merely for requests. It's for communion with God. And it has a plethora of benefits. It sets our mind on the things above. It cultivates an appetite for the glory of God. It purifies the heart. It taps into the enabling grace of the Spirit. It warms our affections for God. It helps us see our circumstances from an eternal perspective. But as it relates to requests, which Jesus is addressing here, it should be evident that prayer isn't bending the will of God to our will. It's us bending our will to his. If we're to pray in a manner consistent with his will, then we come before God with requests. We come before him and wrestle. And we are forced to pray in a manner consistent with how he's revealed himself in his word. And as we grow in Christ, we will ever increasingly grasp his will and will pray accordingly. And so this should have been very comforting for the disciples. Jesus would depart, but his departure was a necessary departure to guarantee fruitful ministry. Because he goes to the Father, the disciples would do the works that he did and even greater works. And by virtue of going to the Father, they would have an access to the Father's throne in prayer, an access to Jesus, whereby even in his departure, he would continue to care for them and to provide for them and to supply their needs. And beyond that, he has just made it clear to them that if they have seen him, then they have seen the Father. And so if you want to see God, behold him in the Son. He's the very radiance of his glory. Behold that radiance, and as you do, you're beholding the Father. You need a transcendent reason to exist, a a reason to exist that would get you up off the the crushing circumstances that you're under, be about your sanctification. Be about the sanctification of God's people. Be about 
gospel proclamation, use your sphere of influence to reach people for Christ. Are you settled, or rather unsettled, about the future? Then draw comfort from the fact that you have the Spirit indwelling you. You have direct access to the throne of God, and that you can storm that throne with boldness and confidence in prayer, knowing that God loves you and cares for you and is going to meet every need that you have. And so really, we're back to verse 1, I guess. John 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. Even as you think about your circumstances, God has promised that he will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Everything, even the the crushing weight of difficult circumstances, all of that, is going to result in the glory of God and your good. And your ultimate good is God's glory and your sanctification. And so do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that we're seeing in the gospel of John. We're grateful that we can be at that table with our Lord and the 11 and receive the instruction. Father, we pray that you would help us and assist us to receive the comfort of the truth that we've just considered, to apply it to our lives, that it would be applied with power, that we'd experience in the inner man its sanctifying effect, and that we would be strengthened to walk in light of it in a way that would bring honor and glory to your name. And so, Father, we... We give you praise and thanks. You are glorious. Jesus has shown us who you are. And we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.